welcome back to the album years and uh this is quite quick for us tim it's a mere a mere two months since we last did one of these so we're, we're speeding up again so we should say that this is the end of january and as as befits this time of year i have a stinking cold so those of you old like me and tim that remember late 70s british tv commercials remember the commercial about malcolm ordering his return to dottingham dottingham and that's me so i'm gonna all my l's are gonna sound like d's today dottingham excellent uh, and and tim you're chomping on some biscuits i am chomping on sandwiches i am drinking coffee yeah because uh, we're doing this at lunchtime as well because we're so professional. We st- we started out with such great intentions when we started this podcast. Two and a half years ago, can you believe it's two and a half years ago we started doing this? We were so professional then. We went away and we listened to all the albums beforehand. Uh, we made sure that we'd eaten, that there was no going to be no sonic anomalies invading the podcast. Now here we are. I've got a stinking cold. Tim's chomping on his cookies. And I personally haven't even looked at the list of what we're going to be covering today. Uh, that's how unprofessional I am. But I think that's good. I think it means that this is going to be very fresh and off the cuff. I was about to say, we sort of did that the last time, really. And I was kind of amazed by how my memory of most of the things was pretty accurate. So some of the things I'd not heard since 1983... And the ABC album, for example, which I think we probably edited out in the end, but I was amazed at how accurate the description was. And it was just on one play. I'd have heard this in 1983. And similarly, I had um, one reader's letter where they were convinced that I was wrong about Joe Brown doing the Woolworths 1983 advert. They thought it was Roy Hudd. But of course, it turned out it was Joe Brown going, Shivin' in the rigging tiger, Joanne, Joanne. All I'll say is, listeners, more fool you if you challenge Tim on his memory of 1980s British TV commercials. (laughs) Isn't that right, Tim? It is true, yeah. Now, we're doing 1995. (laughs) No, 1995 we're doing today. And uh, it's funny because we did a 90s year before and I think we struggled, didn't we? Was it 90... Three we did? We did 1992, and we forgot a couple of great albums from that year. You know, one of them, Suzanne Vega, 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees, which I thought was right. brilliant. We, for some reason, forgot it. But yeah, it was looking over that list and looking at that year now on Rate Your Music. I'm really struggling to find anything that I find exciting. It just seems to be like the death of an era, really, though there were a couple of good albums. This year for me, 1995, it's as exciting as any we've done in the 70s, 60s or 80s. Clearly, clearly the best album of 1992 was the, the debut Dobad, the <laughs> de- debut Dobad release, Love Size. But uh, 1995, I think you're right, something happened, didn't it? Something happened around, the, around this time. So there's a there's a whole burst of of interesting electronic music. Uh, there's there seems to be a revitalization in terms of of guitar bands as well and guitar music with Britpop and also there's there's the whole sort of trip hop uh, movement, isn't there? That's really mm-hmm. coming of age here, uh, and we're going to come on to that obviously and talk about a lot of the trip. Yeah, hop well, artists. it's sort of fascinating that there are lots of sort of fresh directions. I think 1992, I think it's kind of the hangover from the indie dance, late 80s, very early 90s, that that didn't go into too many exciting places, although you could argue trip-hop came out of that. 
But yeah, I guess 92 was the tail end of indie dance and the beginning or at least the successful stage for grunge, which I don't think you and I were really great fans of. Um, although, of course, some of the Britpop bands were very inspired by the guitar-based grunge bands. Yeah, so it seems to be... Maybe that's it. There's a, there's a kind of return to more homegrown. Uh, it's certainly, from our perspective as, as British people, there's a more homegrown sort of wave of interesting uh, music. Uh, we're not going to talk about grunge music today. As you, as you kind of suggested, it's never really our thing. We're, we're quite honest. We nail our colours to the mask. We say this is not the kind of music we personally like, so we're not going to try and talk about it. But there is a lot of music that you and I both love from this year that we can talk about. So let's start. Um, top of the list here. This is a great year for electronic music in all its various guises. So let's start with with drum and bass going mainstream. And I think this might be about the time that I became aware of it, Along, I guess, along with a lot of people. I guess there are people out there that were more uh, immersed in the underground scene and was, were aware of drum and bass. As it was, initially, it was called Jungle, wasn't it? But for me, and perhaps for you, when we first became aware of it was when Goldie signed to a major label and released his debut album, Timeless. And I remember buying this record at the time. And it's a great record, isn't it? So, so tell us about... Goldie and Timeless, Tim, in your experience? Well, for me, drum and bass, I'd actually heard it about a year or two before because a friend of mine... Oh, <laughs> good for you. Yeah. Good for I you. I heard it in that to that to too. Actually, I did. I, to, to be fair, I heard it in 1980 on Dark Room by Paul McCartney. That's when I first heard Jungle or Drum and Bass, when the master had invented the form. But yeah, a friend of mine, Paul, he bought a couple of really cheap CD jungle compilations as they were being marketed then. So I heard it quite early on and thought it was interesting. But like you, the first time I already bought it was probably Goldie's Timeless. And um, I loved it. I mean, it's a great prelude, obviously, to the masterpiece Saturn's Return, which is the ultimate drum and bass statement, as everybody knows, obviously. A colossal folly that I personally don't like, but you do like. And I understand that one of the things we talk about on this show are these albums that, you know, most people would consider to be follies or failures. But sometimes we love those records, you know, the Tales from the Topographic Oceans kind of syndrome. You love that one, don't you? I mean, I th th this is... This is, to me, this is a much better record. Timelessism is a much better record. But what, what's interesting about drum and bass, isn't it, is that there were certain elements about drum and bass that were extraordinarily unfashionable, even at the time. Yeah, yeah. The sort of re the reliance on almost a jazz fusion-esque sort of quality. And this, this is straight away apparent on the opening track on this record. It's a 22-minute long suite, Inner City Life, mm. which does sort of, you know, nod towards... Uh, jazz funk and jazz fusion, doesn't it, at it, times? Well, what I really like about it is partly that it echoes that music, but in such a distinctive and unusual way. And I'm not sure whether it's because Goldie wasn't a conventional musician at that point, but there are so many dissonances in this. So you've almost got this kind of echo of the Quiet Storm R&B, you know, Roy Ayers, for sure. And... It's horribly out of tune at times. The singing isn't out of tune, but the chords are completely wrong for the melodies. And that's one of the things I, I like about it. So, yeah, it's symphonic, it's ambient, it's got some really unfashionable pad sounds. 
The rhythms are fantastic, and you're right, there's um, an incredible fusion influence. And I was going to say that two of the musics that really seem to reoccur a lot in a lot of these releases we're going to talk about, dub music and fusion music seem to have come back into the spotlight in 1995 for some bizarre reason. Yeah, and it, it was interesting that it was almost like this was the peak of drum and bass in the mainstream. This this yeah. was the beginning of drum and bass in the mainstream, but it was also the peak of drum and bass in the mainstream. At least certainly this album and the Ronnie Size represent New Forms yeah. album. You're forgetting 1997's Earthling by David Bowie. That was obviously an artistic peak of drum and bass as well. Yeah, if you say so. So the, the, these two albums kind of represent the peak of drum and bass in the mainstream. And, and obviously the Ronnie Size album went on to win the Mercury Music Prize here in England. And then it kind of disappeared. And it, it, it's still around. You know, drum and bass is still mm. around. And there are still people making drum and bass music. But it's kind of returned from whence it came, isn't it? After this sort of very brief sort of dalliance with with mainstream pop culture and timeless is is kind of the beginning and and virtually the end of that too but mm. i think it still holds up i still think it's a great record it it is you know it, it is mad uh, not mm. as mad as the follow-up album which you could argue was probably the nail in the coffin of drum and bass <laughs> I, I love drum and bass i love drum and bass rhythms you know i i, I found myself going down a little bit of a rabbit hole in the in the few years after this and discovering some very dark drum and bass you know as as always there is this kind of dark side to the light side and if goldie and ronnie size represented the light side there was things like panacea uh, which were extremely aggressive, brutal, brutal music, but but also using drum and bass rhythms. But one of the things that's kind of interesting is that, as you said, it kind of gradually appeared in the early 90s, then suddenly had its day in the sun and very quickly faded out. But it had a massive impact on a few more mainstream performers. So Bill Nelson did a drum and bass album in... 96, which is pretty good. And everything but the girls walking wounded was loaded yeah, I was just with, say. you know, glorious album and of course that was as musical as maybe timeless isn't in some ways a lovely album but that was the mainstream light flip side of drum and bass so so that's goldie's timeless so there's a lot of great electronic music coming out at this time and um, electronic music which has kind of evolved shall we say from the dance floor into something much more cerebral you know which started with you know things like Aphex Twin selected ambient works 8592 which came out two or three years before this but now we have a whole generation of a lot of these artists were recording for the the british label warp records so Aphex Twin released uh, his album, I Care Because You Do, and Orteca released their third album, Try Repetit. I'm, I'm a massive fan of both of these artists. These are definitive records in their catalogue because they catch both of the artists. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast many, many times. Catching artists at a point where they're in transition. Sometimes they're in transition. Most often they're in transition from a more populist sound to a more avant-garde experimental sound. We talked about Scott Walker, for example, who, you know, has this gradual transition from sort of, you know, TV crooner to avant-garde neoclassicist composer. And the records we tend to like the most are the ones that kind of fall somewhere between the, the, he's kind of on the way. And I think this is true also of, of Orteca. That, I mean, they've become one of the most experimental I mean, they're almost now that the albums they make now are almost you could you could put them in the same category as what Karlheinz Stockhausen was doing, you know, in terms of 
There's definitely a lineage there from 20th century experimental electronic music to what Oteca do now. But they came from techno music, dance music, club music. And Tri Repete catches them at a point where they're somehow, they're somewhere in between that transition. So it's still very accessible. There's still melodies there. There's still recognizably uh, dance rhythms there. Their rhythms these days are so abstract, you couldn't possibly dance to them. <laughs> um, but there are, still, there are still elements of dance culture uh, in, the, in this record. And I think it's one of their, their great rocks. I don't know how familiar you are with this, this kind of music. Too. I sort of listen to it a little bit at the time and I refreshed my memory of a lot of these albums um, a couple of days ago and it, it's funny because I know you always had a great deal of enthusiasm for this and I always kind of found it sonically really interesting and sometimes I'd think oh that's an idea I want to take because obviously I think we were in the middle of recording wild opera pieces at this time so I was listening to anything and everything and kind of enjoying it but it, it's an interesting thing and we'll come on to the artists that I did really like in this field but generally speaking though I could see the talent think it was good it kind of left me cold so when I was listening to the Aphex Twin I really liked Ict Hedral for example great absolutely mm-hmm. loved it but I just can't say I felt very much of it if it makes any sense to you just kind of you know yeah that's all right no it does I mean I think you know you're you're a singer and, uh, you know, obviously you love a lot of instrumental, instrumental music before before you correct me. You're, you're a singer, but I think so. I think ultimately your focus is all on melody, always on melody uh, and perhaps slightly less on music, which is purely about rhythmic rhythm and texture. Now, obviously, as I say, there are exceptions to that rule. And, you know, you, you do like some records like that. But generally speaking, I generally speaking, I think I would veer more towards that than you would. Yeah. I think you're always look you're always looking for the the sort of emotional heart of, of, a, of a performance of a sung performance or a melodic aspect to the music. And and the music of Orteca and Aphex Twin isn't about that. It's about texture. It's about rhythm. You know, my favorite track on I Care Because You Do is, is Ventolin which is a very brutal track. And perversely, it was the song chosen to be the single from the record, yeah, even though it had zero, uh, you know, radio or commercial potential. It's very aggressive. It's very brutal. It's all about the rhythm and the way the rhythm is processed. I love that. I'm still fascinated by that. But then that's because I come at these records more from the perspective of uh, someone who, you know, produces music rather than tries mm. to think about myself as a singer songwriter uh and i think that's true a lot of some of the other things on this list the muslim i mean i'm a massive fan of muslim gauze many of his tracks are nothing more than taking a rhythm or a loop and processing it that's all there is to a lot of it so it's all about that kind of hypnotic rhythmic groove and if you if you kind of relate to that too or not you know i don't know what he was doing but there was always a sense that he was just basically letting a loop run and then just playing with the possibilities of how he would process it over two five ten minutes and for a lot of people that made for a very boring listening experience but to me i completely fell you know under the spell of muslim because one of the most prolific artists of all time as well i mean even though he passed away you know after only 20 years of making music he still produced a discography that still to this day uh, the record labels are catching up with, you know, with his his prodigious output. I think there's something like 200 albums out there now. It's I mean, crazy. There's, there's a sort of connection I make, you know, when I was listening to this one, because his album from this year, um, let's have a look, what was it? So I had it written down and now obviously delete it. No, Islamophobia. So unprofessional. Unprofessional. Islamophobia. It reminded me partly of some of Bill Laswell's experiments with voices in particular, and even My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. It's got some of that feel 
in there. Although it's a very different process. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely tapping into that same kind of exotica. There's also a strong aspect of industrial culture in, in what he does too. As indeed there is in a couple of other artists on this list, uh, both British artists, Scorn and Techno Animal. Again, I'm massive fans, a massive fan of both of these artists. Scorn, some of the grumpiest electronic music ever made. I, I can't... I can't think of any other way to describe it. It's like the most depressing, grumpy, angry, trip-hop, breakbeat, industrial hip-hop, however you want to describe it, and a kind of subterranean quality. It's all about the low end. Uh, and, of course, this is Mick Harris, who started his career as the drummer in Napalm Death. So this, is, this was a real career shift for him, except that it still has a sense of some of that aggression and anger that still comes through in the music. What's your take on Scorn? Well, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, because Ortecra, Aphex Twin really didn't do anything for me, whereas Scorn, I got straight away. It's almost like some kind of ominous dub. It's quite gripping, it's quite intense, um, and you're hearing influences from club culture, but it's anything but club culture music. No, it's completely come down. It's feel-bad music. Mm. If club music is feel-good music, Scorn, I mean, what a brilliant name for this project yes. as well. It's the perfect name. I think because of the production, because it's got this kind of quite gritty lo-fi production, the one thing it has, which a lot of this music doesn't, is immediately on first hearing it, there's an attitude. I would oh, yeah. say that you're plunged into this darkness, this attitude, and it doesn't let go of you for the entire album duration. Yeah, I think the word you used, ominous, is the best. I mean, I use the word grumpy. There's something yeah. about the music that always seems slightly angry. But I think ominous is the better word. It's it's definitely got that sense of foreboding all the yeah. time, hasn't it? The beats are very clipped, very slow. The bass is almost is almost so subby you wouldn't hear it if you were mm. listening on a on a telephone. You have to hear it on a good system. You know, it's it's incredibly overpowering. I, I love it. And and interesting, the techno animal record has a similar. Yeah, uh, it's in a similar milieu, isn't it? It's it has, a, but it, it's a little, it's a little bit less ominous. Um, interestingly, is this this is another record where we can perhaps point what we started off talking about with the Goldie record, point to another influence, say, of jazz funk fusion, particularly yeah. I would say Miles' sort of dark Magus era, that kind of dissonant jazz funk, jazz fusion, scorched earth fusion, yeah. and of course, no coincidence that John Hassel is the trumpet player. John Hassel is one of the guests on this record. This is a massive, sprawling two and a half hour record with twenty minute long unbroken tracks sequences, where really there's a lot. Of repetition and again it's just about letting the loops play out and letting the processing take over well this is a lot cleaner the techno animal i remember actually always being a little disappointed that it wasn't quite as dark and gritty as the name suggested it's, it's pretty good. dark you know, it's good it's, it's quite pretty in some ways you know at times this kind of pretty ambient drones it sounds very nicely produced actually I like it. You know, I like the album. I'm, I'm just saying, whereas Scorn immediately does it for me, this is kind of a little cleaner in some ways. Um, and actually, I've got the genre that they both can work in. It's Apocalypse Dub. 
Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Did you just make that up or is that did, actually a yeah. genre? No, I just made it up. Uh, that's very good. I like that. Apocalypse dub. Yeah. And and what's interesting about Techno Animals re-entry is that this was released on Virgin Records, lest we forget. Um, it, during a very brief time when Virgin Records launched a kind of ambient imprint, except they didn't go and sign pretty ambient artists. Yeah. They went and signed all the grumpiest, darkest ones. And... Another record they released at this time, which I think you and I both agree is a little bit of a masterpiece, another double LP released by Virgin, a, a big mainstream frontline release, Paul Schutz's Apart, which again is it's, in its own way, it's very dark. It's not, this is not Eno style ambient music, is it? It's something no. about, the, I, Paul Schutz always had that sort of gamelan aspect to his sonorities, didn't he? His sounds and his tones, sort of atonal, microtonal aspects to this music. This is not pretty music, but at the same time, it's it's got, a, it's got perhaps it's got more of an emotional heart to it than the techno animal or scorn. Because uh, you like it, so it must be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's well, my no, evidence. Well, yeah. this one, I, I, I remember being really excited by it at the time, and I still think it's a great album. Um, and you're right, there's a gamelan quality, so it has this kind of tonality which is quite alien. But the other thing it has, for me, it's a bit like the skeleton of or the ghost of the most experimental early 70s fusion music. So you can hear harmonies from Miles Davis or Herbie Hancock's Sexton in there, but it sounds nothing like them. Yet, if you know that music, you're thinking, you know what? This is somebody who has, you know, this is where he's coming from. But it's so abstracted. It's really divorced from its source inspirations. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very original sound. So it's somewhere between... I'd say the ghost of fusion music and gamelan. And why I think I quite like it is accidents happen with a lot of loop music and a lot of the electronic music we're talking about. There's a certain kind of predictability with this. Every single bar produces a different harmony. I think the difference between Paul Schutz and, say, the techno animal and the scorn is there's much more of a sense of intellectual kind of rigour applied to the music, isn't there? It seems mm. like he's almost approaching it like a quote-unquote serious composer. And as you say, there is this there is this sense when you listen to that music that every single event is considered yeah. um, and has been and has been sort of pared down to create exactly the effect that he wants to create, but not at the expense of the emotional quality that the music. It definitely has. I mean, it's 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 quite a beautiful, uplifting experience. At the same time, it is inhabiting this quite subterranean electronic world, isn't it? Let's move on now. So we've talked about purely um, instrumental electronic music. Let's move on now to the records that were, if you like, taking this new generation of electronic music and fusing it with more of a singer-songwriter sensibility, which I think is probably much more close to your heart. So we have Bjork's Post, which I think is her second is, solo yeah. record. Is that right? Yeah. And we have Tricky's Maxine K, which uh, was, you know, that was a real game changer. Along, along with Portishead's Dummy and, and Massive Attack's work, this was the real frontline trip-hop game-changing music, wasn't it? This is this is one of those records, isn't it? Tricky's Maxine K. I think Tricky had that goldy quality where there's a lot of accent this i think is probably the most mainstream and accessible album he ever did and that does not do it down because it's still very experimental it's still really interesting there's still a haunted quality one of the things again if you're thinking about 1995 you don't know what it is but a lot of the albums coming out even the mainstream ones 
are very haunted. There's something quite dark. Again, that word ominous. And that really comes with, you know, there's a post-punk darkness in some of Max and Kay as much as there's a dub element, as much as there's an R&B element. That's interesting. You you know, I think you're right. There's almost like a sense that this is hauntological music before people started talking about hauntology. And, mm. you know, obviously artists like Boards of Canada were about to come, the next two or three years were about to emerge. And this whole notion of electronic music somehow reflecting also the past, having a kind of gauzy sort of nostalgic look into, uh, you know, childhood and nostalgia and, and loss and all these things. And you're right. It actually really does start here, doesn't it? Even before people started talking about this, you definitely hear it in records like Max and Kay. And you hear it in, in certainly in Portishead's Dummy as well, that they're almost referencing the past as the, much as the future. So there's this kind of retro futurism yeah. going on. And I think it's perfectly encapsulated by now, Max and Kay. And you're right. Again, also, I think there's a sense that this is a guy that doesn't really know what he's doing. And that's what makes it special. Yeah. That he's kind of, there's this collision of things that are a quote-unquote proper musician would never put together. And I think we see that time and time again, don't we? That the real mavericks very often are people that aren't necessarily aware of what makes them special mm. uh, and sometimes struggle. I mean, I think Tricky's a great example. Max and Kay, in many ways, was something he struggled. It's his debut album. Something he struggled, certainly in commercial terms, he struggled to ever match it again. And part of that perhaps is not quite understanding what it is you did in the first place. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you i mean i think this possibly is his definitive statement my favorite tricky album is probably his second album but after this it became a little more difficult it became a little more indulgent to the point where i found it almost impossible to listen to some of the music as good as it was and there's also a kind of influence in his music which doesn't appear in any of the other trip-hop artists and not anyone else in the bristol scene but he's got this kind of clattering tin can rhythm that is very swordfish trombones Tom Waits on this album at times. I think I think what I I feel like the tricky album has in common with something like the specials, for example, is that sense of a sort of this music almost coming from a an inner city housing estate. It's very gritty. Yeah. And I think actually that also comes across in Goldie, even though the Goldie music is is aspirational and beautiful. I think that comes from quite a dark place and an authentic place. So I, I kind of, in my mind, I always sort of link Goldie and Tricky in some ways. I know they're very different artists and produce very different albums, but I think there's there's a certain kind of modus operandi and a certain kind of sensibility that links them. It's also quintessentially British, isn't it? So whereas a lot of American music that's come out of hip hop culture would be more gangstery, you know, this this music is not about that. It's more depressing in a way that I actually really like, you know. It's certainly got more of a sense of the dour and depressing. So there are some other great electronic albums that came out this year. We, we can't talk about them all, but just to sort of list some of the other ones that came out this year. Uh, we had some great albums by Left Field, The Orb, Chemical Brothers, Wagon Christ, Panasonic uh, and Oval, uh, Oval being the artist that kind of made skipping CDs somehow into beautiful electronic music. If you've never heard it, it's, it's fascinating. Let's move on to your next category. You've got a category here just called Eno. Testament to the fact that the Eens was as prolific as ever. And he was involved in a lot of collaborations this year, a collaboration with U2 under the name of Passengers, 
a collaboration with Yar Wobble. Great album, Spinner. I, I really like that record. But I think the one that we, we should probably dwell on here the most is the Bowser. The Bowser's album. of this. Now, this was very much a... I mean, I hate to use the word because it's such a cliche, isn't it? Return to form. But it was, wasn't it? It was a real return to form. This was a return to the kind of edgy Bowie that I think a lot of us hankered after. And no coincidence that this was, I think I'm right in saying, the first time he collaborated with the Eans since the Berlin trilogy? Yeah, it, it was. And I think the thing is with, the, with, with Bowie, he had done some good stuff. In the early 90s. I mean, you know, my sure. view with Bowie yeah. is, I think, Scary Monsters, utter classic. Let's Dance is brilliant for what it is. And I think that... the Agreed. While Tonight and Never Let Me Down are not very good, you kind of felt that his heart wasn't in it, so he wasn't there. So I always felt the, the, the great disappointment was Tim Machine. As okay as that album is, and obviously I can't read as a classic piece from that... This was Bowie attempting to access the spirit of the up-and-coming radical American bands like Pixies and slightly failing. And this is kind of Bowie channeling Nine Inch Nails, isn't it? So what makes this better? What makes this a more successful project? I think this. Oh, I think there's an element of Nine Inch Nails in there and there's also an element of Scott Walker. I mean, obviously Scott Walker, which we may come on to later, did his album Tilt this year and this is, you know, one of the few albums that can be compared to Outside One. Um, I think there's a lot more going on because he brings back Mike Garson as well as Brian Eno. So there's a very strong jazz element in this music that you'd never hear in Nine Inch Nails. Uh, you know, That's not true, Tim. That's not true because Mike Garson is all over the fragile. But ryth- rhythmically, rhythmically, okay. this is quite jazz. Also, Reeves Gabrels suddenly reveals himself as an amazing guitarist in a Terry Ripdall style at times. You know, he's bringing in... You know, this is another album that actually has fusion elements in it. It also has aspects of Bowie's Berlin trilogy, even sort of early 80s King Crimson and minimalist composers Philip Glass, Steve Reich and a lot of the interlocking rhythms. There's quite a lot going on. I, I think it's a remarkable album and the only disappointment is, is the last track, which is a great track, but it's just taken from the Buddha of Suburbia soundtrack and it's a conventional ending to a very unconventional album yeah i mean i think it's bowie so it's always going to be worth listening to it's definitely one of his more successful records of of this era if not the most successful record of this era to me it's far too long um yeah i agree with that 70 75 minutes 17 tracks it doesn't quite sustain the attention for that long what could what could you know um but definitely when i hear tracks like hearts filthy lesson i'm like oh he's listened to nine inch nails you know which is fine which is fine you know that's what bowie was always very good at you know kind of being a little bit of a magpie and and listening to what was around him and kind of bringing it into his world filtering it through his own personality and i think perhaps if there was a problem with tim machine is it didn't transcend and it's the same problem with earthling the follow-up record Mm. the drum and bass record it didn't transcend the influences that it was taking in this one does i think and i think that's the difference it pulls it off it sounds like bowie his voice is magnificent on this as well it's really yeah diverse you know the styles he's singing in you know have bowie the balladeer bowie the walker bowie the rock singer everything's on this album um i mean like you i think 
I agree, this album is way too long. I mean, my personal view is it's probably in my top five Bowie albums, but if it was my curated 35-minute Bowie album or 40-minute Bowie album, it might be in my top two or three Mm. Bowie albums. I think it's that good. But a lot of the albums of this year are overlong. It is the ultimate CD age excess. Yeah, the not only is the Goldie album too long, it's two CDs of too long, but I can, you know, live with that to a degree. And as we as we mentioned, the Techno Animal and the Paul Schutz albums, they're double albums. I think it's easier with electronic music to kind of just I mean, I don't want to suggest that this is these records are background music records, but it's easier to kind of put them on in the background um, and, the, and then the duration doesn't become such an issue. But when it's music, which is obviously vocal, it's lyrical, you're supposed to engage with it. It's hard to concentrate on it for a long time, I find. Yeah. So I always think vocal music, particularly song orientated music, is better in shorter bursts. Instrumental music, ambient music, music about texture, about repetition. It's easier. It's, you know, it's fine. If you want to make a double album, I'm just going to put it on in the background and it's just going to be there, you know, like a perfume filling the room. But you can't say that about an album like the the, the outside record. It demands your attention and yeah. therefore it's very hard to... I mean, I can't listen to it in one go. Uh, it would have been better as two. I think. I think what you're saying is it would have been better, almost split into two 35-minute records. I think they would have been they would have been absolute masterpieces. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that this isn't a masterpiece, but it's a masterpiece that I personally don't want to listen to very often because of the the sort of draining length. Uh, yeah. of it, so. I know. I, yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. And also this the overriding concept, the one thing we've not mentioned really, the elephant in the room on this album, where it's a kind of cyber detective mystery that's running through it with Bowie using a variety of processed voices. And um, and sometimes I think, I'm really glad he did that. It's so ridiculous and it's so unselfconsciously ridiculous. I love it. On another level, it sort of breaks the mood of some of the best and darkest music he's ever made. And again, talking of this hauntology and this haunted, ominous atmosphere of 1995, this has got some of Bowie's darkest music. Now, we need to acknowledge that 1995 is also the peak year. I think I can say that with, without fear of contradiction. is the peak year of Britpop. And I think the reason it's the peak year is that it was the year that the so-called battle of the bands took place. The two leading kind of figures in Britpop, although they probably both despise the term, Blur and Oasis went head-to-head, at least certainly in media terms, uh, with releasing new singles and new albums this year. And Oasis's album has become, in many ways, their definitive album. Uh, it certainly has their most the most well-known song they ever released on it, Wonderwall. Blur's album has kind of faded a little bit. I don't think it was their best work. I don't think they would consider it their best work. So in that sense, Oasis definitely seemed to have won the war. But the battle at the time was won by Blur, who had the number one single. This is a story that many of you will know. But Tim, how do we assess the music uh, 28 years later? How do we assess this music? I quite liked some of it. I think you were always a lot more suspicious of it <laughs> than I was. Uh, mm. I, for example, I love the Supergrass album from this year, I Should Coco. It's a really fun, inventive record, which did seem to reclaim a lot of the Britishness um, 
that had gone missing in the sort of grunge era of rock music and pulps, different class. Of course, the great single, mm. um, which I can't even remember the name of. The great single, Tim. Different class. The great class. single, different class. I'll tell you in a second. You've forgotten it too. What's think, it called? I think what it is, it's, con- it's contagious at the moment. It's a contagious amnesia, which I think, again, that could, that could be another musical genre, contagious, contagious amnesia. Contagious middle age. That's what it is. <laughs> is it called Other People or something? Common What's it called? Common, Common people. Thank you. What a great single. What a great single. Anyway, so Britpop. So we have Blur, Oasis. We have Pulp's fantastic single common people i was less keen on the album uh and supergrass's debut album so this is a real peak year for Britpop. we also had bands like gene and charlatans releasing records this year how do you feel about the whole notion of Britpop with this distance now tim i was never keen i mean i loved trip hop i loved drum and bass obviously i was still keeping tabs on older artists that i really admired some of whom we'll discuss later um, it seemed a bit retro in the same way that I think that Suede, um, who obviously had very strong influences from the 1980s with the Smiths and obviously David Bowie's 70s work. I think Suede, in some ways, are the unsung progenitors of Britpop and they deserved a lot more success as a result of that. And in some ways, they were slightly more perverse and slightly more interesting. I think in Brett Anderson, they had quite a distinctive and emotional singer. Um, Blur, I think, very clever. I've actually come to really like some Blur. So Park Life, quite liked a few tracks on it. Great Escape sort of left me cold. Subsequently, I think they've done some great stuff, stuff like Think Tank, where they're using Moroccan rhythms. And I think Damon Albarn's solo work has been brilliant. And I really like Gorillaz. So I think that he's developed into a major artist, which I I didn't necessarily hear on the likes of The Great Escape. Um, Oasis, very good at what they do, but, you know, I always remember at the time somebody saying that they were like a cross between the Ruttles and status quo. No, I know what you mean. I think it's, again, a bit like you too, it's very easy to to pick holes in Oasis and to criticise them because on the surface, there's nothing particularly special about what they do. Um, it is very meat and potatoes, indie rock. I think what made the difference, a couple of things that made the difference is Noel's songwriting always sounded, instantly it sounded familiar to you in that way that a great melody instantly kind of insinuates it in your brain and sounds sounds like the sort of melody that must have been written a hundred times before. In his case, they probably had. (laughs) Um, Mm. I think Liam had a great voice, a kind of sort of slightly sneering, but very appealing, very accessible pop rock voice. And they wrote a couple of songs, I think, which sounded instantly anthemic and had mass appeal. And that seemed to do it for them. That seemed to do it for them. Of course, history has proved, in terms of Blur and Oasis, history has proved which band actually had the flair and the talent to go on and develop what they did. So in that sense, you know, I quite like Oasis. I quite, I bought the album at the time. I quite enjoyed it. I haven't listened to it for many years. If Wonderwall comes on the radio, I always think, yeah, that's a very pleasant song. Don't look back in anger. They, they all seem like somehow they are. It's interesting. It's almost like if you'd it, these days, of course, there are there are artificial intelligence, intelligence programs that you can feed in a bunch of songs and it will come up with a kind of, you know, gestalt <clears throat> song that sounds mm. like 
what you fed into it. Yeah, they were like, you know, I say likeable despite the conflicts between them. But if you saw the interviews at the time, they were, they were witty in a way that the Beatles had been witty in the 60s. They brought back a kind of playfulness that I yes. guess the scene was missing. You know, we're talking about darkness elsewhere. Oasis were the opposite of that. You know, they were lads, they were bantering and they were very good at it. They seemed very unpretentious. They seemed yeah. very... And one of the funniest things on the internet, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before on the show, one of the funniest things on the internet is Noel Gallagher doing a commentary to the Oasis compilation of Oasis videos. Because he fucking hated videos. He hated <laughs> every single video. And it's it's so funny. Britpop. So, it, you know, this is the peak year. It didn't last very long. I think it was a bit of a shot in the arm, wasn't it? It was a bit... It was. There was a sense about the British reclaiming rock music after grunge and whether you whether you like it or not that's that's it kind of it was mission accomplished in a sense wasn't it well i guess what it did is is what a lot of movements do you know we talked about punk and we talked about progressive rock we talked about psychedelia that sometimes when things become fashionable record companies sign a dozen bands and out of those dozen bands you're going to find one or two talents you know this was the way of the 60s the 70s the 80s and as we found out the 90s as well you know anything that looked and sounded the part got signed so you did as a result of Britpop get major future talents like Damon Albarn and to be fair Jarvis Cocker you know when you were talking about pulp they were probably the Britpop band I liked the most partly because he was a great lyricist um, and they had a kind of ambition, an art pop ambition that was clearly influenced by Roxy music that I sort of responded to. Um, and I agree with you on Supergrass, that Supergrass actually were the Britpop band where it wasn't obvious, you know, whereas you could really see in a self-conscious way influences that Damon Albarn was drawing on and influences that Noel Gallagher was drawing on. However well they were drawing on them, they were drawing on influences, obviously, in the case of um, Supergrass, they very much seem like their own band, actually. It's just that they, they yeah. were like a band having fun in the studio, making a noise. And you couldn't say, oh, that's the Kinks, that's the Beatles, that's... I think there's a degree of that with Oasis, too. There, were, there definitely was an Oasis sound for all of the sort of accusations of plagiarism of the Beatles catalogue or the, the T-Rex catalogue or whatever it was. There was a sense that they had their own sound. That kind of sneering Liam Gallagher approach did seem quite fresh at the time, uh, although to diminishing returns as, as the years went on. And you're right, there was that sense that they were very irreverent uh, in interviews. It, it, the downside of that was it was the kind of heyday of lad culture again in Britain, wasn't it? Uh, which I felt, you know, completely alienated from. Let's move on. So we... We also have a few records in in the sadcore genre. Now, sadcore is almost a style of music that's, that's designed to appeal to you and me, Tim. We love We're sad, doing. spacious, slow, lugubrious, you know, pick your adjective. Mm. Uh, we love this kind of music, don't we? Uh, we've talked about Red House, Red House Painters on the show before, haven't we, I think? Um one of my favourite bands of all time. I think the first five Red House Painters albums, they kind of they kind of mind a seam, but did it in such a divine, divine way. Ocean Beach. Sometimes I think this might be my red, favourite Red House Painters album. Um, it's such a beautifully out of time, transcendent, spiritual, honest, 
And there's a sort of there's a slight London feel to this album, isn't there? I think he spent a lot of time in England being signed to a British label. This album seemed to have a more of a. There's a lot of references to places. Is it Brockwell Park? Isn't that somewhere in uh... Brockwell Park? Yeah, south southeast London. I, well, I lived quite near there at the time, and uh, yeah, it does evoke something of a kind of hopeful melancholy, if that makes any sense. That there's a, an overall sense of sadness and yet there are some kind of hopes for the future or hopes for a relationship. And he was searingly honest in the way in which he depicted relationships he was in and, and quite evocative in terms of describing places. So, you know, his descriptions of San Francisco on earlier albums. And then on this, you're right, there's a kind of a London quality. I was going to say, it's my favourite Red House Painted album. I, th- I think the first four albums are amazing. This is the fourth and it's my favourite. It's probably the most musical and the most beautifully produced. Um, but there's something about it. It's just the overall quality of this collection, for me, is the one that I keep on coming back to. And it might have even been my favourite album of the year at the time. It's funny, isn't it? Because, it, you know, you, you mentioned that thing that there's a slightly hopeful quality to some of this music, but it still ends up being slightly, I, I don't know. It, it's so funny, the, the album starts with this beautiful instrumental called Cab- Cabazon, I think it's called, yeah, yeah. which is very major key, very melodic. It feels very kind of summery and uplifting, but there's still something about it that's drenched in sadness. <laughs> mm. And, and I, I, I don't know how else to articulate that, but there's something that just permeates all of his music, all of Red Hat Time. Maybe the production. There's a sense of disappointment about, about all of his songs, I think, you know, about loss and regret and disappointment. Maybe it's also that this album is a little bit more compact. It hasn't got the sort of... Um, gigantism of mm. of some of the other records it's about 55 minutes long isn't it i think and there's also there's also that feeling that a lot of this music has existed for a long time before he's put it down uh, and i think songs like drop actually he did write years and years before and maybe there's also a sense that he's arrived at a point where he understands the studio a bit better now he's able to record things uh, in a slightly more professional way without kind of neutering the quality of the music and the honesty of the music. This feels like one of the most beautiful sounding Red House painters. Very albums, much so, it? yeah. And I think as well, that kind of hopeful melancholy and the major key instrumental, it reminds me a bit of Nick Drake. This is one of the albums where yeah. there's a different influence. Perhaps it's got a more natural 60s, 70s singer-songwriter quality that's been added to the production as well. Let's talk about another band that kind of fit beautifully into this that I don't think we've ever talked about on the show before, which is the American band Lowe, you know, and and Lowe, unfortunately, a a husband and wife team, Mimi has just passed away, very sadly. Um, This is a band that have made a long string of albums that almost define the term sadcore. There's something about the way the voices worked together, the male and the female voice, Something about the space, the tempos, the the even the artwork, everything about this band is sad but uplifting. You know, you used that phrase a moment ago with, with reference to Red House Painters, hopeful melancholy. This is kind of the embodiment of that also, isn't it, Lowe? Yeah, whereas Red House Painters were, were much more all-enveloping for me as a passion. Lowe are a band I'm quite happy to dip into and think, that's beautiful. 
So I, I'm not quite as familiar with the back catalogue as I am many of the other um, artists we're talking about. It is big. I mean, it is a vast... I think the, the difference between Red House Painters and Low is that Red House, Red House Painters only made, you know, five or six records. Low, low, there is, you know, there's a lot of records and a lot of them are... I'm being perfectly honest, as a fan here, a lot of them are difficult to differentiate in my mind. Uh, I mean, the album from this year is called Long Division. I know I have it. I couldn't <laughs> honestly tell you which songs were on that record. See, I, I can tell you the, the Low Christmas album, I can tell that one apart from the rest of them. That's a lovely record. That's probably the low record, Brilliant record. I break out the most. Although the record from a couple of years ago, uh, I forget the name of it now, again, Middle Age Onset now, where they worked with an experimental producer. Uh, it's called Double Negative. Double Negative. That's an incredible record. I would urge you to listen to Double Negative. Very, very experimental. There's a use of noise, electronic processing. It's almost like they handed over their archetype, their sound, to this guy and basically said, right, completely fuck our sound up. Make it completely unrecognisable. Make it abrasive. Do Muslim gauze on us. Basically, make it abrasive and ugly, but still somehow keep what's special about us. And that's exactly what this record does. But this this era, Long Division, maybe it's one of the, maybe they're an example of one of those bands that just has a sound that is so beautiful. The idea that they make songs and they make albums almost loses its relevance. It's almost just like you 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 lose yourself in their sound. It's so. It's so distinctive. It is like a continuum. For me, they're one of those bands a bit like Stereolab, and I've always liked Stereolab, but again, there are so many releases that sometimes sound so samey that it blurs into one for me, and I think Low have been a bit like that, where they're groups that I really like, really admire, but I find it difficult to understand the minutiae of the work, really. I see it as an overall... Picture. Whereas, you know, there's one of the sadcore albums this year, which I, I really like, was the Spain album, which was, I think, Charlie Hayden's son, Josh Hayden. Tell us about this one. Well, this one, it, it's a beautiful sounding record and it's very, very spartan. I mean, in terms of its sound, whereas Low, I think, always have that slightly dreamy lo-fi quality. And of course, a lot of the Red House Painters earlier albums did. This one sounds amazing, but there's very, very little going on. Spartan guitar, bass, brush drums and voice. Um, so it has a kind of clarity sonically that you sort of associate with late 50s Miles Davis or Dave Brubeck albums. That's one of the differences between it and most of the sadcore releases. It's just a collection of very sad, very slow, very pretty songs and um, a really nice, complete package. And I suppose what they did, what of course Lowe didn't do, was um, didn't really produce very much after this. Let's talk about um, Baby Bird. You know, this this was quite an anomaly uh, in, in the music scene at the time, wasn't it? Because Britpop sort of lad culture was becoming very dominant. And along comes this guy who basically had spent the previous several years writing songs in his bedroom on a Porter studio and started releasing these very low-profile records, compiling, you know, songs from this massive cache of songs that he'd amassed, a hundred songs or something he'd recorded over this uh, previous years, and started to release these albums and became a bit of a cause celebra didn't he and I, I remember discovering him 
just a random review of one of these what's what later became known as the original lo-fi albums because he later on got a major record deal and had big hit singles in the uk and i actually completely lost interest in his music at that point i i love i love the lo-fi aesthetic and the honesty and the i'm making these i'm making this music for no one but myself and the four walls of the room i'm sitting in kind of quality that these albums have something wonderfully ten- now it's interesting we were talking about low you know you never really engaged completely with that band is it that there wasn't a strong personality there as there was with red house painters and i'm i'm listening to someone like baby bird and there's a very strong personality there isn't there which immediately kind of grabs you and pulls you in the lyrics the voice you're entering someone's world in the way that the first time you heard Morrissey whether you loved him or hated him you completely got sucked into his world um all his lyrics his references his personality his visual kind of ticks yeah i think you might be right i mean i loved these albums like you i I probably discovered on the third or fourth and it was exactly the same i'd read a review sounded interesting bought it and it was one of those rare cases where i'd read the review and the review hadn't said enough good things you know i like the music more than than the review suggested I would. And um, it was full of personality. One of the things I really like about this this set is that they were all recorded on his Porter studio sometime between the sort of 80s and early 90s. And I loved that Porter studio sound. There's kind of a crackle and a fizz about it. There's a kind of a really attractive lo-fi sound that that I always liked. And I've always I'm a big fan of the Porter studio and was at the time. And um there's some lovely songs. I mean, and, and when I say songs, you know, these are things, what he's great at, and I guess this is why maybe we sensed a kindred spirit, he's drawing influences from experimental and accessible. You know, this is a guy who clearly would like Burt Bacharach, U2, annoy. He just seems quite a natural magpie with a very eclectic taste. And although he's filtering it through, you know, relatively simple three and four chord pieces, occasionally he hits on rare beauty with some of his ballads and occasionally rare noise with some of his pummeling rhythm tracks. And the other thing he had, as you said, there's a strong personality and he was extremely witty. And I think this is what maybe went against him. He's got a kind of Zapper-esque sense of humour, which I think, whereas it doesn't put people off Zapper as a part of his brand, it may be wrong-footed people because he had gorgeous ballads that could be undercut by a savage joke. Um, there was an odd quality, um, which as I said, personally, I, I really quite like, because I think, as I said, the music could have glorious soaring melodies, which of course came to the fore on his mainstream album that was released about a year after this. That was a huge hit. I think it was 95, 96, he had a couple of massive hits. Um, And subsequently he's gone back into lo-fi territory um, and he's been making some really interesting music. And actually I'd say that some of his major work was also interesting. You know, you'd always have um, very poignant pieces that would undercut the anthems. And I think that's the thing with him. You know, you go from anthems to poignant ballads to pure noise rhythm experiments. There's kind of a lot going on there. Yeah. And I think that's why the Morrissey comparison is valid because Morrissey would always have sort of a a sort of joke in the middle of what appeared to be, you know, a very, a very dour Northern lyric about, you know, 
unemployment or whatever it was or the end of a relationship, there'd, there'd always be a classic Morrissey gag, you know, that would make you smile, couldn't help make you smile. And I think that's definitely here too. There's definitely a northern a northern aspect to this music. I, I think, you know, I, I think it's hard. For, I, I struggle to hear what his influences might have been. I mean, you've, you've talked about you picking up on some of his influences. I think he he definitely created his own little world there. And one of the I say one of the things I love about these records is that they were made for no one. There was no mm. one listening. Um, it, this is the sound of no one listening to coin a, a porcupine tree track title. Let's let's move on, Tim, to another sort of maverick that perhaps was a little bit out of out of time. Was he ever? Was he ever a part of his time? Momus, because Momus, the Momus. we love the Momus, but he released. A bit of a strange record this year. He decided to re-record some of his most sublime compositions in a more jaunty way and and release mm. this album called Slender Sherbet. Now, if ever a tr- if ever an album title gave the game away, this is it, Slender <laughs> Sherbet. You know, you, you we use that word om- you use the word ominous with regard to Scorn earlier. I think a lot of the great Momus tracks also have that sense of being on the edge of what's acceptable, a slightly ominous quality. And how can you take these amazing intense pieces and turn them into froth? What was he thinking? And has this been a kind of harbinger for the way his career has gone subsequently? Yeah, sadly, I think it is. I mean, obviously, Momus was an artist that I discovered very early on, absolutely adored his work. And some of his early work, you know, his mid-80s material, it's beautifully played, beautifully sung. And his work did get progressively more DIY in a way. And, and I sort of went on that journey. And some of those albums are great. You know, Voyager is, is really good. Yeah, which Time Lord. One of the albums just before this, Time Lord. There's some amazing stuff. And I don't know, he just seemingly came apart this year. So you've got Slender Sherbert, which obviously, as you well know, we used to use as an example of what we did not want to become. We also did painted on our walls Slender Sherbert as if we cannot become this because he took his best work. And I guess it's it was the thing of owning copyright, owning the license that he'd gone to a new label. And it was almost like he got the cheapest Farfisa organ and sample keyboard and really pissed on his great work it's almost like you know it's what i'm going to do you're actually making it sound more appealing <laughs> this is a sort of record i would actually like to go and hear and you have to understand that from myself and tim's point of view we worshipped the moms and he did, could do no wrong until slender sherbet and 20 vodka jellies so the titles kind of say it all don't they really this is almost trivializing something that until that well having said that he made an album called hippopotamomus uh, hippopotamomus at least had a really kind of strong sonic identity influenced by you know serge gansberg um it was almost it was a cd serge gansberg very seedy but cd electronic pop yeah but it worked you know it cd did. electronica fantastic new genre that the Moms created I, I think yeah I, you know part of this were tempering because it was great disappointment because we anticipated every release and, and maybe as well in some artists lives and I can see this you know I know a couple of artists have kind of done this where they don't like the fact that people are hanging on through every word and sometimes you know obviously one of the great examples of this is genius which is strawberry feels forever that you know Lennon hated the fact that the school that had um, despised him they were studying Beatles lyrics and he partly wrote Strawberry Fields Forever almost as an impenetrable joke. But of course, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, that didn't work, did it? But I'm afraid that 20 Vodka Chellies and Slender Sherbert 
really did kind of you know, make me reconsider my, my interest in his work. And of course, he did do a proper album this year, I think. Was it this year as well, The Philosophy of Moments? Yeah, Philosophy of Moments, it, which is, again, um, you, we were talking earlier about albums that are far too long. 17 yeah. tracks, 80 minutes, whereas before that, we'd kind of got used to these very compact 40-minute... I mean, I think Hippopotamomas, Time Lord is like eight tracks, 36 minutes, perfect. You know, you could engage with every song and come to love every song. That album is an album I just never and I never could be bothered to to kind of find my way into it. It was exhausting, you know, and, uh, you know, like Robert Wyatt, somebody who I absolutely adore. His last couple of albums were, were overlong in the CDH and he even had a pause at one point, you know, as if he knows that right. the audience will be slightly exhausted. exhausted at a certain point. But Philosophy of Moments, I think, had it been edited down Probably would have been as good yeah, yeah. as yeah, there's many great tracks of Momus' roots. Yeah. There's some wonderful tracks in that. So the thing is that in 95, Momus is still displaying a rare sensitivity and a rare genius. But I don't think that can be heard on Slender Sherbet. And it really does. You know, when I'm saying Farfisa organ, it is like these really jaunty, cheaply recorded. It's, it's almost as if he's done it in two hours when he's very drunk one night. It does seem like an almost deliberate act of sabotage, doesn't it? You know, it's imagine it, it's almost like if Nick Drake had lived a few few more years and gone back and recorded his material from Pink Moon with a sort of jaunty Casio VL tone <laughs> backing and sort of sung it in a mock Cockney accent. And, and of course, he has, you know, over the years, he's reclaimed aspects of uh, what we like in his work. And he's continued to progress and continue to make strange albums you know he is one of those artists he's a real outlier real outsider artist who has created his own universe of sound let's move from the the very obscure lo-fi aesthetic of of baby bird and momus to what were the big boys doing this year the major the major labels what what were the major mainstream artists releasing this year so we have Garbage released their debut album. Foo Fighters released their debut album. Uh, I know nothing about Foo Fighters <laughs> except that they're massive. That is all I know about I, them. I know nothing about them except Dave Grohl seems like a nice guy. Dave Grohl sings with them and the occasional songs I've heard. It's just vapour to me. Scott. Tilt. Now, we've talked about Scott before on the show, but Tilt is one of the other albums, along with Climate of Hunter and 3 and 4, that I think of as the as the definitive Scott records. And this is before he disappeared completely into the sort of theatrical avant-garde world of albums like Bish Bosh um, and The Drift, which I admire. We talked about, talked about this before, yeah. I think. I admire records like The Drift. I genuinely love Tilt. This is an album which is definitely up there with Climate of Hunter for me as as the perfect encapsulation of Scott the crooner allied with Scott the avant-gardist. Would you agree with me, Tim? Completely. This hits the sweet spot. It's experimental, yet it's still thrilling and beautiful and dramatic. And it's a companion album in a sense to Climate of Hunter, although it goes far further. It's got probably a nicer sound. I mean, I really like Climb of Hunter. You know, I adore the album. Um, this one, I think, doesn't have the 80s 
trappings. I mean, I like those 80s trappings, but in a way, this is a more timeless yeah. version of Climate Hunter. It's, just, it's astonishing. And weirdly, one of the things you said earlier was... Um, if Bowie was drawing on Scott Walker, Bowie was also drawing on Nine Inch Nails, you were saying. I think there's, on occasion, the dramatic twists between moments of quiet beauty and then pummeling noise. There's a kind of Nine Inch Nails influence on Tilt as well, maybe. Possibly. Yeah, it's funny, though. It's almost like he takes it even further. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, on yeah. you know, that, that sequence on the cockfighter, which is almost pure white noise for about a minute and a half or something. It's difficult to imagine even Trent Reznor having the balls to put that, <laughs> at least on mm. one of the records, uh, you know, from, from the, the mainstream heyday of the band. And it's got a great band there as well. You know, David Rhodes is on guitar as well. It's, it's got a fantastic art rock ensemble. And, uh, and I think, isn't it, Bamba Gascoigne's brother is still doing the orchestrations. Gascoigne, yeah. What orchestration, yeah. What orchestrations they are, yeah. So there's a couple of records, actually. I mean, I'm... You know, I'm actually a fan of of all the grunge bands. I'm probably a, a fan most of all of Smashing Pumpkins. I think they were the most unpredictable, most experimental of the bands. Here's an album. We talk about albums that are over long. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Two and a half hours of music that is all over the place. You know, um, it's this is certainly not a conventional grunge album. This is this is all over the place stylistically, and and I do admire this record. It's one of those records that I, I enjoy dipping into. I don't enjoy every track. I don't think every track succeeds. His voice is definitely an acquired taste. It's 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 kind of whining quality can kind of begin to grate after a while. Billy Corgan's voice, but definitely uh, this was obviously a very clear mark in the sand in the sense we're going to create our masterpiece. We're going to create our massive. Statement here, um, and I like it sometimes when when bands do that. It's almost like you can sense their ambitions are getting out of control. They're going to do. They're going to make their glorious folly. The Goldie Satin's Return Syndrome here, but this is a. This was obviously a more successful attempt at doing some grand folly. Are you familiar with this record, Tim? It's it's definitely a. I've only really yeah. I've only ever heard it probably once or twice, and that was at the time because a couple of friends really rated it. Um, I could see the quality in it, but it never, again, personally gripped me. Yeah, but it's ambitious. Oh, I like ambition. Yeah, it's got everything from orchestrated piano instrumentals to new wave uh, electronic pieces to shoegaze music. It's all over the place, but I think they are definitely one of the more interesting examples. This album is one of the more interesting examples of music that came out of that kind of grunge crucible. And then we have Radiohead's second album, The Bells. Uh, Talk about picking yourself up from what essentially is is not the, the most auspicious debut record, Pablo Honey. Uh, one great song, Creep, and uh, I think otherwise they were very much seen as Britpop. Also Rands, weren't they? And what a turnaround. Well, yeah, no, the Benz, I, I really liked it when it came out, still really like it. I mean, I thought, as we say, you know, Creep, was magnificent and they released a couple of singles that I thought were pretty good you could hear there was something but definitely Pablo Honey didn't really kind of fulfill the potential of the band but this did I mean it's so accomplished and mature you know this is a great rock album for the ages you know it has poignant singer-songwriter tracks that compare with the best Roy Harper and Roger Waters for me it has contemporary rock pieces that for me 
slightly transcend grace. And I guess that Jeff Buckley's grace would have been one of the big influences for this album. But I think that there's um, there's a kind of gritty Britishness in this that you don't hear in grace. Um, so I thought it was a fantastic fusion of, of the weighty and the beautiful and um, really nicely balanced album as well. Yeah, I, I suppose what we don't hear yet, we haven't yet got to the unleashing of the more experimental tendencies, which would come sure. increasingly with the next few records and uh, records I personally prefer to the bends, but there's no denying the quality of songs like S- Street Spirit. Uh, Fake Plastic Trees, of course, is is absolutely sublime mm. uh, uh, anthem. And it, in some senses, this is Radiohead just sort of like transcending all of the other bands that came out um, of the sort of post-grunge, post-grunge British Britpop scene. They've just almost instantly, you know, elevated themselves above the pack with this record and set themselves up for what will come. But even if they hadn't ever, even if they hadn't ever made another record, I think this would still be seen as a classic record alongside, you know, the Jeff Buckley record in that sense. Totally. I think it's one of those albums that, you know, we've, we've often said this, you know, had Jeff Buckley, well, and he pretty much did leave Grace, he'd still be remembered. He is still remembered. Had Radiohead just left us with the Benz, this would be considered one of the greatest albums of that period and justifiably so. You know, it's a, it's a very strong piece of work. And I think that there's something in the harmonies. You know, York's voice was always quite unique. But also, I think um, some of Greenwood's guitar tonalities and harmonies are, are quite unusual. There's a scope that kind of goes beyond most of the bands that are surrounding them. Yeah, for sure. He's just beginning, I think, to to yeah. be to be what he will become. Um, if that's not if that's not too patronising of way of saying it, I think he's he's yet to become the Johnny Greenwood that we know and love. But definitely, he's he's beginning to stretch out here. Um, some other albums that came out this year that we like uh, I really love the Tears for Fears album from this year Raul and the Kings of Spain which at the time felt really out of time it felt like a throwback almost to to um, sort of 80s stadium pop anthemic stadium pop production uh, but interestingly it's really stood the test of time because now of course it's 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 not relevant to talk about it in the context of when it came out I mean it is relevant but it's no longer important to listen to it in that context and it just it's just a great Tears for Fears record and, and I just r- love Roland's voice I was, I was going to say what's kind of interesting here is that, you know, we're talking about this year for some artists. Um, it's important. They're almost lost. So MoMA sounds slightly lost and the music sounds slightly lost. Now, Tears for Fears at this stage were as unfashionable as they've ever been. And they were lost in the scheme of things. And this album got really unfair reviews. But the interesting thing with this album is it is brilliantly played, brilliantly produced, really confident. And what I really liked about it was, was it's almost as if, regardless of whether they're slightly unfashionable, they're slightly lost in the scheme of things, he's still going to make ambitious music as well as he can. And I sort of like that. And I I really like the mid-90s Tears for Fears. Me too. Me too. Elemental and Raul, are, I think, are fantastic records. Never made a bad record to bad. I'm guessing that Raul and, K- and the Kings of Spain was probably a lot better than 10cc's Mirror Mirror album from this year, <laughs> which I've never heard. I've never heard of it, in fact. Uh, but you probably less have. said about that. I have heard it. Of course I've heard it. It's 10cc. God damn it. I've heard everything they've ever done. Is it absolutely wrong? It's not... Well, the last couple of albums are, are, are a chore to get through. Always, They're not badly done. You know, they're well-produced, well-sung. But this one really was a case of the two main members at this stage were barely communicating. It's solo 
tracks in effect. It just doesn't have much of a feel. And again, like Raoul and like Momus, it seems hopelessly lost in 1995. Okay, Tim, I think we'll wrap up there. There's a few other records we, we you know, we might just sort of name check here. Seafield Sucker, the second album, that's a great record. Uh, King Crimson's Thrack, The Beatles Anthology Volume 1, Julian Cope's 20 Mothers, uh, Katie Lang's All You Can Eat, Pram, Sargasso Sea, Swan's The Great Annihilator, uh, Brian Wilson's I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, and Frank Zappa's Civilization Phase 3, which is one of his Synclavia records. Um, by the way, just to correct you there, Tim, you, you mentioned earlier, you said people don't take Frank Zappa to task for the for the the sort of lascivious humour in his music. Actually, they do. There are a lot of people, I think we were talking about who are we talking about? Baby Bird, weren't we? Who's you know mm-hmm. sort of undercutting his music with comedy? I think a lot of people actually are put off by Zappa for the very, very same reason. It's something I hear quite a lot when I talk about Zappa. For example, Richard Barbieri has got no time for Frank Zappa. He just thinks it's silly, puerile comedy music, mm. uh, and he's got a point. You know, there is there there is a lot of that uh, in, in Zappa. So just to slightly pick you up on. All right. Yeah. Right. Let's cut to the chase, Tim. Best album of the year. No, personal favourite album of the year and the album you feel has had the most influence in the longer term. Over to you. Oh, my God. Well, my favourite... I've got to go with... There's so many, actually, but I've got there to go with is. Tilt. Tilt, yeah, yeah. but this one, there's a lot. Tilt and Outside One. And because it's madder, I'm going to go with Outside One as my favourite over Tilt. But those are two... But, then I'm missing out Red House Painter's Ocean Beach, which is one of my favourite albums of all time. So what can I do? I'm going to go with Outside One by David Bowie. OK, I'm also going to go with uh, a selection, a potpourri. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, this is hard. Tilt is is amazing. You're, you're absolutely right when you say that uh, Ocean Beach, many ways, might be the definitive Red House Painter's album, one of my favourite bands of all time. Techno Animals, Reentry, Scorns, Gyral, and so many great electronic records this year. Mm. Or Tekka's Tri Repete. Okay, we've done that. What do you feel is the longest in terms of uh, what do you feel has had the most long term influence? I'm going to go with Tricky's Max and K for the simple reason that it has a kind of mixtape feel that you still hear on albums now. Okay. See, looking at this list, I think probably the Benz has cast the largest shadow over music since. There's been so many bands. You know, Coldplay being perhaps the most famous example. Yeah. It's difficult to imagine a band like Coldplay having existed without an album like The Benz sort of setting the template. I, I hear that in so many bands, which actually a lot of them I really despise. But <laughs> actually, <laughs> I think 100%, I think the radio had influence, especially on like the early 2000s, I'd say that, you know, maybe 2000 to 2010 was massive. So the Benz, OK Computer, so many bands formed in the wake of that that sounded like, you know, that what is quite affecting in York's case, he has this very high pitched voice on occasion became quite irritating in many of the imitators because you kind of felt that they're just doing a York um, or a Yorkie boy, as I think we used to refer to it. Um, so I think you're right. It, it had a massive, massive impact, probably for about sort of 15 years. I'm not sure I hear it as much now, which is probably, probably not, why yeah. I said the tricky. Yeah. That, no, that's fair enough. You know, fair dues. Yeah. I mean, rock music 
you know, generally speaking, rock music has very much disappeared from the mainstream anyway. But you're right. I think there was a period when there was a lot of bands that were very much cast in the image of Radiohead on the Benz and OK Computer. It's hard to imagine bands like Muse, for example. Muse being you know one of the more well-known examples. Of course, yeah. uh, you know, and a good band in their own right. But but definitely they seem like a post-Benz kind of uh, artist, a band in that sense. Okay. So there we go, 1995, a year that we have a lot, a lot that we love about about 95. Yeah, Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk Who it? Would? No, um, but uh, no, I certainly enjoyed re- revisiting this year, and actually, I feel like I want to go and listen to some of these. I want to go and listen to Paul Schutz album. There's another record I absolutely love from this from this year. Fantastic um, record, yeah. And and probably I haven't listened to it for a couple of years, but I'm going to go and listen to it now. I bet it still sounds as good as ever. I listened to it last night. Sounds good. There you go. Fantastic. All right. We shall return with another year. What are we going to do next time, Tim? Pick a year. You've always got a hunch in your mind about what we should cover next. What's your hunch? Well, strangely, we could go back to 1985 or we could do the biggie. You know, this one that we've always wanted to do, 1977, which is a really important year. It's the year of punk rock, isn't it? It's 77. Unless you count 76 as being that. Okay, but in terms of records release, 77 would have been a lot of the yeah, classic, yeah, 77 a lot of classic the, punk records. Yeah. The punk explosion, yeah. yeah. It'll be one of those two <laughs> years, listeners. Okay. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, as always, uh, go and give us a, a wonderful five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. And we will return sporadic, but we do. Thank you very much for listening. And goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.